0: Thirty-six, Hero, Twenty-Four Years Ago Dalinar cursed as smoke billowed out of the fireplace. He shoved his weight against the lever and managed to budget, reopening the chimney flue. He coughed, backing up and waving smoke away from his face. We're going to need to see that replaced, Evie said from the sofa where she was doing needlework. Yeah. Dalinar said, thumping down to the floor before the fire. At least you got to it quickly. Today we will not need to scrub the walls, and the life will be as white as a sun at night. Ebby's native idioms didn't quite translate well into Alethi. The fire's heat was welcome, as Dalinar's clothing was still damp from the rains. He tried to ignore the ever-present sound of the weeping's rain outside, instead watching a pair of flamespren dance along one of the logs. These seemed vaguely human, with ever-shifting figures. He followed one with his eyes as it leaped toward the other. He heard Evie rise and thought she might be off to seek the privy again. She instead settled down next to him and took his arm, then sighed in contentment. It can't be comfortable, Dalinar said. And yet you are doing it? I'm not the one who is. He looked at her belly, which had begun to round. Evie smiled. My condition does not make me so frail that I risk breaking by sitting on the floor, beloved. She pulled his arm tighter. Look at them. They play so eagerly. It's like they're sparring, Dalinar said. I can almost see the little blades in their hands. Must everything be fighting to you? He shrugged. She leaned her head on his arm. Can't you just enjoy it, Dalinar? Enjoy what? Your life. You went through so much to make this kingdom. Can't you be satisfied now that you've won? He stood up, pulling his arm from her grip and crossed the chamber to pour himself a drink. Don't think I haven't noticed the way you act, Evie said, perking up whenever the king speaks of the smallest conflict beyond our borders. Having the scribes read to you of great battles? Always talking about the next duel? I'm not to have that much longer, Dalinar grumbled, then took a sip of wine. Gavilar says it's foolish to endanger myself. Says someone is bound to try to use one of those duels as a ploy against him. I'll have to get a champion. He stared at his wine. He'd never had a high opinion of dueling. It was too fake, too sanitized. But at least it was something. It's like you're dead, Ebby said. Dalinar looked over at her. It's like you only live when you can fight, she continued. When you can kill. Like a blackness from old stories. You live only by taking lives from others. With that pale hair and light golden skin, she was like a glowing gemstone. She was a sweet, loving woman who deserved better than the treatment he gave her. He forced himself to go back and sit down beside her. I still think the flames Spren are playing, she said. I've always wondered, Dalinar said, are they made of fire themselves? It looks like they are. And yet what of emotions Spren? Are anger Spren then made of anger? Evie nodded absently. And what of Glory Spren? Dalinar said. Made of glory? What is glory? Could Glory Spren appear around someone who is delusional or perhaps very drunk, who only thinks they've accomplished something great, while everyone else is standing around mocking them? A mystery, she said, sent by Shishi. But don't you ever wonder? To what end? Ebby said. We will know eventually when we return to the One. No use troubling our minds now about things we cannot understand. Dalinar narrowed his eyes at the flame-sprain. That one did have a sword, a miniature shard blade. This is why you brood so often, husband, Evie said. It isn't healthy to have a stone curdling in your stomach, still wet with moss. I, what? You must not think such strange thoughts, Who put such things into your mind anyway? He shrugged, but thought of two nights before, staying up late and drinking wine beneath the rain canopy with Gavilar and Navani. She'd talked and talked about her research into Spren, and Gavilar had simply grunted while making notations in glyphs on a set of his maps. She'd spoken with such passion and excitement, and Gavilar had ignored her. Enjoyed the moment, Evie told him. Close your eyes and contemplate what the One has given you. Seek the peace of oblivion and bask in the joy of your own sensation. He closed his eyes, as she suggested, and tried to simply enjoy being here with her. Can a man actually change, Evie? Like those spren change? We are all different aspects of the One. Then can you change from one aspect to another? Of course. Ebby said. "'Is not your own doctrine about transformation? "'About a man being so cast from crass to glorious? "'I don't know if it's working.' "'Then petition the one,' she said. "'In prayer? "'Through the ardents?' "'No, silly. "'Yourself?' "'In person?' "'Dalinar asked. "'Like at a temple. "'If you wish to meet the one in person?' You must travel to the valley, she said. There you can speak with the one, or to his avatar and be granted the old magic, Dalinar hissed, opening his eyes. A night watcher. Evie, don't say things like that. Storms, her pagan heritage, popped up at the strangest times. She could be talking good Voren Doctrine, and out came something like that. Fortunately, she spoke of it no more. She closed her eyes and hummed softly. Finally, a knock came at the outer door to his rooms. Hothen, his room steward, would answer that. Indeed, Dalinar heard the man's voice outside, and that was followed by a light rap on the chamber door. "'It's your brother, bright lord,' Hathen said through the door. Dalinar leaped, opening the door and passing the short master-servant. Evie followed, trailing along with one hand, touching the wall, a habit of hers.' They passed open windows that looked down upon a sodden colinar, flickering lanterns marking where people moved through the streets. Gavilar waited in the sitting room, dressed in one of those new suits with the stiff jacket and buttons up the sides of the chest. His dark hair curled to his shoulders and was matched by a fine beard. Dalinar hated beards. They got caught in your helm. He couldn't deny its effect on Gavilar, though— Looking at Gavilar in his finery, one didn't see a backwater thug, a barely civilized warlord who had crushed and conquered his way to the throne. No, this man was a king. Gavilar wrapped a set of papers against the palm of his hand. What? Dalinar asked. Rathalas, Gavilar said, shoving the papers toward Evie as she entered. Again? Dalinar said. It had been years since he'd visited the Rift, that giant trench where he'd won his shard blade. They're demanding your blade back, Gabalar said. They claim that Tanelon's heir has returned and deserves the shard as you never won it in a true contest. Delanor felt cold. Now I know this to be patently false, Gabalar said, because when we fought at Rathalas all those years ago, you said you dealt with the heir. You did deal with the air, did you not, Delinar? He remembered that day. He remembered darkening that doorway, the thrill pulsing inside him. He remembered a weeping child holding a shard blade, the father lying broken and dead behind, that soft voice pleading. The thrill had vanished in a moment. He was a child, Gavilar, Delinar said. His voice hoarse. Damnation, Gavilar said. He's a descendant of the old regime. That was... Storms, that was a decade ago. He's old enough to be a threat. The whole city is going into rebellion, the entire region. If we don't act, the whole lands could break off. Dalinar smiled. The emotion shocked him, and he quickly stifled the grin. But surely... Surely someone would need to go and rout the rebels. He turned and caught sight of Evie. She was beaming at him, though he'd have expected her to be indignant at the idea of more wars. Instead, she stepped up to him and took his arm. You spared the child. I, he could barely lift the blade. I gave him to his mother and told her to hide him. Oh, Delinar. She pulled him close. He felt a swelling of pride. Ridiculous, of course. He had endangered the kingdom. How would people react if they knew the Blackthorn himself had broken before a crisis of conscience? They'd laugh. In that moment, he didn't care, so long as he could be a hero to this woman. Well, I suppose rebellion was to be expected, Gavilar said as he stared out the window. It's been years since the formal unification. People are going to start asserting their independence. He raised his hand toward Dalinar, turning. I know what you want, brother, but you'll have to forbear. I'm not sending an army, but I can nip this thing with politics. We can't ever show a force be our only method of maintaining unity, or Elokar will spend his entire life putting out fires after I'm gone. We need people to start thinking of Alethkar as a unified kingdom, not separate regions always looking for an advantage against one another. Sounds good, Dalinar said. It wasn't going to happen, not without the sword to remind them. For once, however, he was fine not being the one to point that out. 37. THE LAST TIME WE MARCH. YOU MUSTN'T WORRY YOURSELF ABOUT RACE. IT IS A PITY ABOUT AONA AND SKY, BUT THEY WERE FOOLISH, VIOLATING OUR PACT FROM THE VERY BEGINNING. NUMUHUKU MAKIAKIA, i ALUNAMOR, HAD ALWAYS BEEN TAUGHT THAT THE FIRST RULE OF WARFARE WAS TO KNOW YOUR ENEMY. ONE MIGHT ASSUME THAT SUCH LESSONS WEREN'T TERRIBLY RELEVANT IN HIS LIFE ANYMORE. Fortunately, making a good stew was a lot like going to war. Lunamore, called Rock by his friends, on account of their thick, lowlander tongues being incapable of proper speech, stirred his cauldron with an enormous wooden spoon the size of a longsword. A fire burned rockbud husks underneath, and a playful windspren, whipped at the smoke, making it blow across him no matter where he stood. He had placed the cauldron on a plateau of the shattered plains, and, beautiful lights and fallen stars, he was surprised to discover that he had missed this place. Who would have thought he could become fond of this barren, wind-swept flatland? His homeland was a place of extremes. Bitter ice, powdery snow, boiling heat, and blessed humidity. Down here everything was so... moderate and the shattered plains were the worst of all. In Yakaved he'd found vine-covered valleys. In Alethkar they had fields of grain, rock buds spreading endlessly like the bubbles of a boiling cauldron. Then the shattered plains. Endless, empty plateaus with barely anything growing on them. Strangely, he loved them. Lunamore hummed softly as he stirred with two hands churning the stew and keeping the bottom from burning. When the smoke wasn't in his face-this cursed too thick wind had too much air to behave properly-he could smell the scent of the shattered plains. An open scent. The scent of a high sky and baking stones, but spiced by the hint of life in the chasms. Like a pinch of salt. Humid, alive with the odors of plants, and rot intermingling. In those chasms, Lunamore had found himself again after a long time being lost. Renewed life, renewed purpose. And stew. Lunamore tasted his stew, using a fresh spoon, of course, as he wasn't a barbarian like some of these lowlander cooks. The long roots still had further to cook before he could add the meat. Real meat, from finger crabs he'd spent all night shelling. Couldn't cook that too long or it got rubbery. The rest of Bridge Four stood arrayed on the plateau, listening to Kaladin. Lunamore had set up so that his back was toward Narak, the city at the center of the Shattered Plains. Nearby, one of the plateaus flashed as Renar and Colin worked the oath gate. Lunamore tried not to be distracted by that. He wanted to look out westward, toward the old war camps. Not much longer now to wait, he thought. But don't dwell on that. The stew needs more crushed limb. I trained many of you in the chasms, Kaladin said. The men of Bridge Four had been augmented by some members of the other bridge crews and even a couple of soldiers that Dalinar had suggested for training. The group of five scout women was surprising, but who was Lunamore to judge? I could train people in the spear, Kaladin continued, because I myself had been trained in the spear. What we're attempting today is different. I barely understand how I learned to use stormlight. We're going to have to stumble through this together. It's all good, Goncho. Lopin called. How hard can it be to learn how to fly? eels do it all the time and they are ugly and stupid. Most bridgemen are only one of those things. Kaladin stopped in line near Lopin. The captain seemed in good spirits today, for which Lunamore took credit. He had, after all, made Kaladin's breakfast. The first step will be to speak the ideal, Kaladin said. I suspect a few of you have already said it. But for the rest, if you wish to be a squire to the Windrunners, you will need to swear it. They began belting out the words. Everyone knew the right ones by now. Lunamore whispered the ideal. Life before death. Strength before weakness. Journey before destination. Kaladin handed Lopin a pouch full of gemstones. The real test and proof of your squireship will be learning to draw stormlight into yourselves. A few of you have learned it already. Lopin started glowing immediately. And they will help the rest learn. Lopin, take first, second, and third squads. Sigzel, you've got fourth, fifth, and sixth. Pete, don't think I haven't seen you glowing. You take the other bridgemen. And Teft, you take the scouts and... Kaladin looked around. Where is Teft? He was only just noticing. Lunamore loved their captain, but he got distracted sometimes. Maybe air sickness. Jeff didn't come back to the barracks last night, sir, Leighton called, looking uncomfortable. Fine, I'll help the scouts. Lopin, Sigzel, Pete, talk your squads through how to draw in stormlight. Before the day is done, I want everyone on this plateau glowing like they swallowed a lantern. They broke up, obviously eager. Translucent red streamers rose from the stone, whipping as if in the wind, one end connected to the ground anticipation sprang. Lunamore gave them the sign of respect, hand to his shoulder, then his forehead. These were lesser gods, but still holy. He could see their true shapes beyond the streamers, a faint shadow of a larger creature at the bottom. Lunamore handed off his stirring to Dabid. The young bridgeman didn't talk and hadn't since Lunamore had helped Kaladin pull him from the battlefield. He could stir, though, and run waterskins. He had become something of an unofficial mascot for the team, as he'd been the first Bridgman that Caledon had saved. When Bridgman passed Dabid, they gave a subtle salute. Huio was on kitchen duty with Lunamore today, as was becoming more common. Huio requested it, and the others avoided it. The squat-beefy herdasian man was humming softly to himself as he stirred the shiki a brownish, horn-eater drink that Lunamore had chilled overnight in metal bins on the plateau outside Uratheru. Strangely, Huyo took a handful of lasbo from a pot and sprinkled it into the liquid. What are you doing, crazy man? Lunamore bellowed, stomping up. Lasbo? In drink? That thing is spicy powder, air-sick lowlander. Huyo said something in her Dazian. Bah, Lunamore said. I do not speak this crazy language you use. Lopan, come here and talk to this cousin you have. He is ruining our drinks. Lopan, however, was gesturing wildly at the sky and talking about how he'd stuck himself to the ceiling earlier. Lunamore grunted and looked back at Huyo, who proffered a spoon dripping with liquid. Air-sick fool, Lunamore said, taking a sip. You will ruin... Blessed gods of sea and stone, that was good. The spice added just the right kick to the chilled drink, combining flavors in a completely unexpected yet somehow complimentary way. Huyo smiled. Bridge four, he said in thickly accented Alethi. You are lucky, man, Lunamore said, pointing. I will not kill you today. He took another sip then gestured with the spoon. Go do this thing to other bins of Shiki. Now where was Harbor? The lanky, gap-toothed man couldn't be too far away. That was one advantage of having an assistant chef who could not walk. He usually stayed where you put him. Watch me now carefully, Lopin said to his group, stormlight puffing from his mouth as he spoke. All right, here it is. I, the Lopin, will now fly. You may applaud as you feel is appropriate. He jumped up and then crashed back to the plateau. Lopin, Kaladin called. You're supposed to be helping the others, not showing off. Sorry, Gon, Lopin said. He quivered on the ground, his face pressed to the stone and didn't rise. Did you, did you stick yourself to the ground? Kaladin asked. ''Just part of the plan, gone, Lopin called back. ''If I am to become a delicate cloud upon the sky, I must first convince the ground that I am not abandoning her. Like a worried lover, sure, she must be comforted and reassured that I will return following my dramatic and regular ascent to the sky.'' ''You're not a king, Lopin,'' Drey said. ''We've been over this.'' ''Of course I am not.'' I am a former king. You are obviously one of the stupid ones I mentioned earlier. Lunamore grunted in amusement and rounded his little cooking station toward Haber, who he now remembered was peeling tubers by the side of the plateau. Lunamore slowed. Why was Kaladin kneeling before Haber's stool, holding out a gemstone? Ah, Lunamore thought. I had to breathe to draw it in, Caledon explained softly. I'd been doing it unconsciously for weeks, maybe months, before Teft explained the truth to me. Sir, Aber said, I don't know if, I mean, sir, I'm no radiant. I was never that good with the spear. I'm barely a passable cook. Passable was a stretch, but he was earnest and helpful, so Lunamore was happy to have him. Besides, he needed a job he could do sitting. A month back, the assassin in white had swept through the king's palace at the war camps trying to kill Elokar, and the attack had left Hobber with dead legs. Khaled unfolded the gemstone in Haber's fingers. Just try, the captain said softly. Being a Radiant isn't so much about your strength or skill, but about your heart. And yours is the best of all of us. The captain seemed intimidating to many outsiders, a perpetual storm for an expression, an intensity that made men wilt when it turned on them. But there was also an astonishing tenderness to this man. Kaladin gripped Haber on the arm and almost seemed to be tearing up. Some days it seemed you couldn't break Kaladin's storm blessed with all the stones on Roshar. Then one of his men would get wounded, and you'd see him crack. Kaladin headed back toward the scouts he'd been helping, and Lunamore jogged to catch up. He bowed to the little god who rode on the bridge captain's shoulder, then asked, You think Hubbard can do this thing, Kaladin? I'm sure he can. I'm sure all of Bridge Four can. And perhaps some of these others. Huh, Lunamore said. Finding a smile on your face, Kaladin Stormblessed, is like finding lost sphere in your soup. Surprising, Yes but very nice too. Come, I have drink, you must try. I need to get back to- Come, drink, you must try. Lunamore guided him to the big pot of Shiki and poured him a cup. Kaladin slurped it down. Hey, that's pretty good, Rock. Is not my recipe, Lunamore said. Huyo has changed this thing. I now have to either promote him or push him offside of Plateau. Promote him to what? Kaladin asked, getting himself another cup. To Ersick lowlander, Lunamore said. Second class. You might be too fond of that term, Rock. Nearby, Lopin talked to the ground, against which he was still pressed. Don't worry, dear one. The Lopin is vast enough to be possessed by many, many forces, both terrestrial and celestial. I must soar to the air, for if I were to remain only on the ground, surely my growing magnitude would cause the land to crack and break. Linamore looked at Kaladin. I am fond of term, yes, but only because this thing has astounding number of applications among you. Kaladin grinned, sipping his shiki and watching the men. Farther along the plateau, Drehe suddenly raised his long arms and called out, Ha! He was glowing with stormlight. Bissig soon followed. That should fix his hand. He too had been injured by the assassin in white. This will work, Rock, Kaladin said. The men have been close to the power for months now. And once they have it, they'll be able to heal. I won't have to go into battle worrying which of you I'll lose. Kaladin, Lunamore said softly. This thing we have begun... It is still war. Men will die. Bridge four will be protected by their power. And the enemy? They will not have power. He stepped closer. Surely I do not wish to dampen Kaladin's storm-blessed when he is optimistic. But nobody is ever perfectly safe. This is sad truth, my friend. Maybe, Kaladin admitted... He got a distant look on his face. Your people only let younger sons go to war, right? Only Twana Lekina, fourth son and younger, can be wasted in war. First, second, and third sons are too valuable. Fourth son and younger so hardly ever. Huh? You do not know the size of Onida families. Still, it has to mean fewer men dying in battle. Peaks are a different place, Lunamore said, smiling at Silphrenna as she rose off Kaladin's shoulder and started dancing on the nearby winds. And not just because we have right amount of air for brains to work. To attack another peak is costly and difficult, requiring much preparation and time. We speak of this thing more than we do him. Sounds nice. You will visit with me someday. Lunamore said. You and all bridge four, as you are family now. Ground, Lopin insisted. I will still love you. I'm not attracted to anyone the way I am to you. Whenever I leave, I'll come right back. Kaladin glanced at Lunamore. Perhaps, Lunamore noted, when that one is away from too much toxic air, he will be less... lopen? Lopin? Oh, upon consideration, this thing would be sad. Kaladin chuckled, handing Lunamore his cup. Then he leaned in. What happened to your brother, Rock? My two brothers are well, so far as I know. And the third brother, Kaladin said, the one who died moving you from fourth to third and making you a cook instead of a soldier? Don't deny it. His sad story... Lunamore said. And today is not day for sad stories. Today is day for laughter, stew, flight, these things. And hopefully, hopefully something even grander. Kaladin patted him on the shoulder. If you ever need to talk, I'm here. That is good to know. Though today, I believe someone else wishes to talk. Lunamore nodded towards someone crossing a bridge onto their plateau. A figure in a stiff blue uniform, with a silver circlet on his head. The king has been eager to speak with you. Ha! Asked us several times if we knew when you would return. As if we are appointment keepers for our glorious flying leader. Yes, Kaladin said. He came to see me the other day. Kaladin braced himself visibly, setting his jaw then walked to the king, who had just marched onto the plateau, trailed by a cluster of guards from Bridge 11. Lunamore positioned himself, working on the soup where he could listen as he was curious. "'Windrunner,' Alokar said, nodding to Kaladin. "'It seems you are right. Your men have had their powers restored. "'How soon will they be ready?' "'They're in fighting shape already, Your Majesty,' but to master their powers. Well, I can't say, honestly. Lunamore sipped his soup and didn't turn toward the king, but stirred and listened. Have you given thought to my request, Elokar said. Will you fly me to Kolinar so we can reclaim the city? I'll do as my commander tells me. No, Elokar said. I'm asking you personally. Will you come? Will you help me reclaim our homeland? Yes, Kaladin said softly. Give me some time, a few weeks at least, to train my men. I prefer to bring a few Squire Windrunners with us, and if we're lucky, I might be able to leave a full radiant behind to lead if something happens to me. But either way. Yes, Elokar. I'll go with you to Alethkar. Good. We have some time, as Uncle wishes to try contacting people in Kolinar using his visions. Perhaps twenty days? Can you train your squires in that time? I'll have to, your majesty. Lunamore glanced at the king, who folded his arms, watching the windrunners, prospective and current. He seemed to have come not just to speak with Kaladin, but to watch the training. Kaladin walked back to the scouts, his god following in the air after him. So Lunamore brought the king something to drink. Then he hesitated beside the bridge that Elokar had crossed to reach this plateau. Their old bridge from the bridge runs had been repurposed for moving people around these plateaus closest to Narak. Permanent bridges were still being reconstructed. Lunamar patted the wood. They'd thought this lost, but a salvage party had discovered it wedged in a chasm a short distance away. Dalinar had agreed to have it hauled up at Teft's request. Considering what it had been through, the old bridge was in good shape. It was made of tough wood, Bridge 4 was. He looked beyond it and was unsettled by the sight of the next plateau over, or the rubble of it. A stump of a plateau, made of broken rock that extended only twenty feet or so from the chasm floor. Rolaine said that had been an ordinary plateau before the meeting of Everstorm and Highstorm at the Battle of Narok. During that terrible cataclysm, when storms met, entire plateaus had been ripped up and shattered. Though the Everstorm had returned several times, the two storms had not again met over a populated area. Lunamore patted the old bridge, then shook his head, walking back toward his cooking station. They could have trained at Uethiru, perhaps, but none of the bridgemen had complained at coming here. The shattered plains were far better than the lonesome plain before the tower. This place was just as barren, but it was also theirs.' They also hadn't questioned when Lunamore had decided to bring along his cauldrons and supplies to make lunch. It was inefficient, true, but a hot meal would make up for it, and beyond that there was an unspoken rule. Though Lunamore, Dabit, and Haber didn't participate in the training or sparring, they were still bridge four. They went where the others went. He had Huyo add the meat with a strict charge to ask before changing any spices. Dabit continued to stir placidly. He seemed content, though it was hard to tell with that one. Lunamore washed his hands in a pot, then got to work on the bread. Cooking was like warfare. You had to know your enemy, though his enemies in this contest were his friends. They came to each meal expecting greatness, And Lunamore fought to prove himself time and time again. He waged war with breads and soups, sating appetites and satisfying stomachs. As he worked, hands deep within the dough, he could hear his mother's humming, her careful instructions. Kaladin was wrong. Lunamore hadn't become a cook. He'd always been one since he could toddle up the step stool to the counter and stick his fingers in the sticky dough. Yes, he'd once trained with a bow, but soldiers needed to eat, and Nawatoma guards each did several jobs, even guards with his particular heritage and blessings. He closed his eyes, kneading and humming his mother's song to a beat he could almost barely, just faintly hear. A short time later, he heard soft footsteps crossing the bridge behind. Prince Renarin stopped beside the cauldron, his duty of transferring people through the oath gate finished for now. On the plateau, more than a third of Bridge Four had figured out how to draw in stormlight, but none of the newcomers had managed it, despite Kaladin's coaching. Renarin watched with flushed cheeks. He'd obviously run to get here, once released from his other duty, but now he was hesitant. Elokar had set up to watch near some rocks, and Renarin stepped toward him, as if sitting at the side and watching was his place, too. Hey, Lunamore said. Renarin. Renarin jumped. The boy wore his blue Bridge Four uniform, though his seemed somehow neater than the others. I could use some help with this bread, Lunamore said. Renarin smiled immediately. All the youth ever wanted was to be treated like the rest of them. Well, that attitude benefited a man. Lunamore would have the High Prince himself kneading dough if he could get away with it. Delinar seemed like he could use a good session of making bread. Renarin washed his hands, then sat on the ground across from Lunamore and followed his lead. Lunamore ripped off a piece of dough about as wide as his hand, flattened it, then slapped it against one of the large stones he'd put to warm by the fire. The dough stuck to the stone, where it would cook until one peeled it off. Lunamore didn't push Renarin to talk. Some people you wanted to press— draw them out. Others you wanted to let move at their own pace. Like the difference between a stew you brought to a boil and one you kept at a simmer. But where is his god? Lunamore could see all spren. Prince Renarin had bonded one, except Lunamore had never been able to spot it. He bowed when Renarin wasn't looking, just in case, and made a sign of reverence to the hidden god. Bridge four's doing well. Renarin finally said. you will have them all drinking stormlight soon. Like Liso, Lunamore said. Ha! But they have much time until they catch up to you. Truth Watcher. is good name. More people should watch truth instead of lies. Renarin blushed. I... I suppose it means I can't be in Bridge Four anymore, doesn't it? Why not? I'm a different order of Radiant. Renarin said, eyes down as he formed a perfectly round piece of dough, then carefully set it onto a stone. You have power to heal. The surges of progression and illumination. I'm not sure how to make the second one work, though. Shallan has explained it seven times, but I can't create even the smallest illusion. Something's wrong. Still, only healing for now? This thing will be very useful to bridge for I can't be Bridge Four anymore. That is nonsense. Bridge Four is not Wind Runners. Then what is it? It is us, Lunamore said. It is me. It is them. It is you. He nodded toward David. That one, he will never hold spear again. He will not fly, but he is Bridge Four. I am forbidden to fight, but I am Bridge Four. And you? You might have fancy title and different powers, he leaned forward. But I know Bridge Four. And you, Renarin Colin, are Bridge Four. Renarin smiled widely. But Rock, don't you ever worry that you aren't the person everyone thinks you are? Everyone thinks I am loud and sufferable lout, Lunamore said. So to be something else would not be bad thing. Renarin chuckled. You think this about yourself, Lunamore said. Maybe, Renarin said, making another perfectly round piece of dough. I don't know what I am most days, Rock, but I seem to be the only one. Since I could walk, everyone was saying, look how bright he is, he should be an ardent. Lunamore grunted. Sometimes, even if you were loud and insufferable, you knew when not to say anything. Everyone thinks it's so obvious. I have a mind for figures, don't I? Yes, join the Ardents. Of course, nobody says I'm much less of a man than my brother, and nobody points out that it sure would be nice for the succession if the sickly, strange younger brother were safely tucked away in a monastery. When you say these things, you are almost not bitter, Lunamore said. Ah, much practice must have been required. A lifetime. Tell me, Lunamore said. Why do you wish to be a man who fights, Renarin Colin? Because it's what my father always wanted, Renarin said immediately. He may not realize it, but it's there, Rock. Lunamore grunted. Perhaps this is stupid reason, but it is reason, and I can respect that. But tell me. Why do you not want to become Ardent or Storm Warden? Because everyone assumes I will be, Renarin said, slapping bread down on the heated stones. If I go and do it, I'm giving in to what they all say. He looked for something to fidget with, and Lunamore tossed him more dough. I think, Lunamore said, your problem is different than you say. You claim you are not the person everyone thinks you are. Maybe you worry instead that you are that person. A sickly weakling. No, Lunamore said, leaning in. You can be you without this being bad thing. You can admit you act and think differently from your brother, but can learn not to see this as flaw. It is just Renarin Colin. Renarin started kneading the dough furiously. Is good, Lunamore said, that you learn to fight. Men do well learning many different skills, but men also do well using what the gods have given them. In the peaks, a man may not have such choices. Is privilege. I suppose. Gliss says. Well, it's complicated. I could talk to the Ardens, but I'm hesitant to do anything that would make me stand out from the other Bridgman Rock. I'm already the oddest one in this bunch. Is that so? Don't deny it, Rock. Lopin is, well, Lopin, and you're obviously, um, you. But I'm still the strange one. I've always been the strangest one. Lunamore slapped Doe onto a rock, then pointed toward Wherever Lane, the Parshendi Bridgeman they used to call Shen, sat on a rock near his squad, watching quietly as the others laughed at Eth, having accidentally stuck a stone to his hand. He wore war form and so was taller and stronger than he had been before, but the humans seemed to have completely forgotten that he was there. Oh, Renarin said, I don't know if he counts. This thing is what everyone always tells him, Lunamore said, over and over again. Renarin stared for a long time while Lunamore continued to make bread. Finally, Renarin stood up and dusted off his uniform, walked across the stone plateau, and settled down beside Relaine. Renarin fidgeted and didn't say anything, but Relaine seemed to appreciate the company anyway. Lunamore smiled, then finished the last of the bread. He rose and set up the shiki drink with a stack of wooden cups. He took another drink himself, then shook his head and glanced at Huio, who was harvesting the bread. The Herdazian man was glowing faintly. Clearly, he'd already learned how to draw in Stormlight. Air-sick Herdazian. Lunamore raised a hand, and Huyo tossed him a flatbread, which Lunamore bit. He chewed the warm bread, thoughtful. More salt in the next batch. The Herdazian just kept harvesting the bread. You do think they need more salt, don't you? Lunamore said. Huyo shrugged. Add more salt to that batch that I've started mixing, Lunamore said. And do not look so self-satisfied. I may still throw you offside a plateau. Huyo smiled and kept working. The men soon started coming over for something to drink. They grinned, thumped Lunamore on the back, told him he was a genius, but of course none remembered that he had tried serving them shiki once before. They had mostly left it in the cauldron, opting for beer instead. That day they hadn't been hot, sweaty, and frustrated. Know your enemy. Out here with the right drink he was a little god unto himself. Ha! A god of cool drinks and friendly advice. Any chef worth his spoons learned to talk because cooking was an art, and art was subjective. One man could love an ice sculpture while another thought it boring. It was the same with food and drink. It did not make the food broken or the person broken to not be liked. He chatted with Leighton, who was still shaken by their experience with the dark god below Uethiru. Powerful god that had been, and very vengeful. There were legends of such things in the peaks. Lunamore's great-great-great-grandfather, had met with one while traveling the Third Divide. Excellent and important story, which Lunamore did not share today. He calmed Leighton, commiserated with him. The thick-bodied armorer was a fine man and could talk as loudly as Lunamore sometimes. Ah, you could hear him two plateaus away, which Lunamore liked. What was the point of a little voice? Weren't voices for being heard? Leighton went back to his practice, but others had their worries. Scar was the best spearman among them, particularly now that Moash had left, but was feeling self-conscious at not having drawn in stormlight. Lunamore asked Scar to show him what he'd learned, and, after Scar's instruction, Lunamore actually managed to draw some in himself, to his delight and surprise. Scar left with a spring to his step. Another man would have felt worse, but Scar was a teacher at heart. The short man still hoped that Lunamore would someday choose to fight. He was the only one of the bridgemen who actively spoke out about Lunamore's pacifism. Once the men had been thoroughly watered, Lunamore found himself looking out across the plateaus for some sign of movement in the distance. Well, best to keep busy with the meal. The stew was perfect. He was pleased to have been able to get the crabs, So much of what everyone ate in the tower was of soul-cast grain or meat, neither of which was very appetizing. The flatbread had cooked up nicely, and he'd even been able to concoct a chutney last night. Now he just had to— Lunamore almost stumbled into his own cauldron as he saw what was assembling on the plateau to his left. Gods. Strong gods, like Silfrenna. Glowing a faint blue, they clustered around a tall Spren woman who had long hair streaming behind her. She had taken the shape of a person, human-sized, and wore an elegant gown. The others swirled about in the air, though their focus was obviously the practicing bridgemen and hopefuls. Uma Ame Takuma Mafaliki, Lunamore started, hastily making the signs of respect. Then, to be sure, he got down on his knees and bowed. He had never seen so many in one place. Even his occasional meeting with an Afaliki in the peaks did not hit him as hard as this. What was the proper offering? He could not give only bows for such a sight as this, but bread and stew? Mafaliki would not want bread and stew. You, a feminine voice said beside him, are so wonderfully respectful, it borders on being silly. Lunamore turned to find Sylphrena sitting on the side of his cauldron in her small and girlish shape, legs crossed and hanging over the edge. He made the sign again. They are your kin? Is this woman at their front your new Atoma, Ali'i Kamura? Kind of, maybe, sort of halfway, she said, cocking her head. I can barely remember a voice, her voice, Fenderana reprimanding me. I got in so much trouble for searching out Kaladin, yet here they are. They won't speak to me. I think they assume that if they do, they'd have to admit to me they were wrong. She leaned forward, grinning. And they absolutely hate being wrong. Lunamore nodded solemnly. You're not as brown as you were, Silfrana said. Yes, My tan is fading, Lunamore said. Too much time indoors, Mafaliki. Humans can change colors? Some more than others, Lunamore said, holding up his hand. Some from other peaks are pale, like Shin, though my peak has always been more bronze. You look like somebody washed you way too much, Silfrenis said. They took a scrub brush to you and rubbed your skin off. And that's why your hair is red, because you got so sore. These are wise words, Lunamore said. He wasn't sure why yet. He'd have to ponder them. He fished in his pocket for the spheres that he had on him, which weren't many. Still, he arranged each one in its own bowl and then approached the assemblage of Spren. There had to be two dozen or more of them. Kalikalinda! The other bridgeman couldn't see the gods, of course. He wasn't sure what Huio or Haber thought of him walking reverently across the plateau, then bowing himself and arranging the bulls with their spheres as offerings. When he looked up, the Ali'i Kamura, the most important god here, was studying him. She rested her hand over one of the bulls and drew out the stormlight. Then she left, turning into a streak of light and zipping away. The others remained, a mottled collection of clouds, ribbons, people, bunches of leaves, and other natural objects. They flitted overhead, watching the practicing men and women. Sophronar crossed the air to stand beside Lunamore's head. They are looking, Lunamore whispered. This thing is happening. Not just bridgemen, not just squires. Radiance, as Caledon wishes. We'll see, she said, then huffed softly before zipping away as a ribbon of light herself. Lunamore left the bowls in case any of the others wished to partake of his offering. At his cook station he stacked up the flatbread, intending to give the plates to Haber to hold and distribute. Only Hobber didn't respond to his request. The lanky man sat on his little stool, leaning forward, his hand in a tight fist that glowed from the gemstone inside. The cups he'd been washing lay in an ignored stack beside him. Haber's mouth moved, whispering, and he stared at that glowing fist in the same way a man might stare at the tinder in his fire pit on a very cold night surrounded by snow. Desperation, determination, prayer. Do it, Haber, Lunamore thought, stepping forward. Drink it in. Make it yours. Claim it. Lunamore felt an energy to the air, a moment of focus. Several windspread turned toward Haber, and for a heartbeat, Lunamore thought that everything else faded. Haber became one man alone in a darkened place, fist glowing. He stared unblinking at that sign of power, that sign of redemption. The light in Haber's fist went out. Ha! Huh, Lunamore shouted. Ha! Huh. Hubbard jumped in surprise. His jaw dropped and he stared at the now done gemstone. Then he held up his hand, gawking at the luminescent smoke that rose from it. Guys, he called. Guys! Guys! Lunamore stepped back as the bridgemen left their stations and came rushing over. Give him your gemstones, Kaladin called. He's going to need a lot. Pile them up. Bridgman scrambled to give Hobber their emeralds, and he drew in more and more stormlight. Then the light suddenly dampened. I can feel them again, Hobber cried. I can feel my toes. He tentatively reached out for support. Dre under one arm, Pete under the other. Hobber slipped off his stool and stood up. He grinned with a gap-toothed expression and almost fell over. His legs obviously weren't very strong. Dre and Pete righted him, but he forced them back to let him stand precariously on his own. The men of Bridge Four waited only briefly before pressing in with cries of excitement. Joy sprang, swirled around the group like a sweeping gust of blue leaves. Amid them, Lopin shoved in close and made the Bridge Four salute. It seemed to mean something special coming from him. Two arms. One of the first times Lopin had been able to make the salute. Hobber saluted back, grinning like a boy who'd just hit his first center shot with the bow. Kaladin stepped up beside Lunamore, Silfruna on his shoulder. It will work, Rock. This will protect them. Lunamore nodded, then by habit checked toward the west as he'd been doing all day. This time he spotted something. It looked like a plume of smoke. Kaladin flew to check it out. Lunamore, along with the rest of them, followed along on the ground, carrying their mobile bridge. Lunamore ran at the center front of the bridge. It smelled of memories. The wood, the stain used to seal it. The sounds of several dozen men grunting and breathing in enclosed spaces. The slapping of feet on plateau. Mixed exhaustion and terror. An assault, arrows flying, men dying. Lunamore had known what might happen when he chose to come down from the peaks with Kepha. No Nuatoma from the peaks had ever yet won a shard blade or shard plate from the Alethi or Vadens they challenged. Still, Kepha had determined the cost was worth the risk. At worst, he had thought he would end up dead, and his family would become servants to a wealthy lowlander. They hadn't anticipated the cruelty of Toral Sadius, who had murdered Kepha without a proper duel— killed many of Lunamore's family who resisted and seized his property. Lunamore roared, charging forward, and his skin started to glow with the power of the stormlight from his pouch and the spheres he had collected before leaving. He seemed to be carrying the bridge all on his own, towing the others. Scar called out a marching song and Bridge Four thundered the words. Bridge Four had grown strong enough to carry the bridge long distances without difficulty but this day put those previous runs to shame. They ran at a sprint the entire distance, vibrant with stormlight, Lunamore calling the commands as caledon or Teft had once done. When they reached a chasm, they practically tossed the bridge across. When they picked it up on the other side, it seemed light as a reed. It felt like they'd barely started going before they neared the source of the smoke, a beleaguered caravan crossing the plains. Lunamore threw his weight against the bridge's outer support rods, pushing it across the chasm, then he charged over. Others followed. Dabbit and Lopin unhooked shields and spears from the side of the bridge and tossed one to each bridgeman as they passed. They fell into squads, and the men who normally followed Teft fell in behind Lunamore, though he had, of course, refused the spear Lopin tried to toss him. Many of the caravan wagons had been transporting lumber from the forests outside the war camps, though some were piled high with furniture. Dalinar Kolin spoke of repopulating his war camp, but the two High Princes who remained behind had been encroaching on the land, quietly, like eels. For now, it was best to scavenge what they could and bring it to Uithiru. The caravan had been using Dalinar's large, wheeled bridges to cross chasms. Lunamore passed one of these, lying on its side, broken. Three of the large lumber wagons near it had been set afire, making the air acrid with smoke. Kaladin floated overhead, holding his brilliant shard spear. Lunamore squinted through the smoke in the direction Kaladin was looking and made out figures streaking away through the sky. Void bringer attack, Drehe muttered. We should have guessed they'd start raiding our caravans. Lunamore didn't care at the moment. He pushed his way through weary caravan guards and frightened merchants hiding under wagons. There were bodies everywhere. The Voidbringers had killed dozens. Lunamore searched through the mess, trembling. Was that red hair on a corpse? No, that was blood soaking a headscarf. And that... That other body wasn't human. It had marbled skin. A brilliant white arrow stuck from its back... Fletched with goose feathers. An Unkalaki arrow. Lunamore looked to the right, where someone had piled up furniture in a heap, almost like a fortification. A head poked up over the top, a stout woman with a round face and a deep red braid. She stood up tall and raised a bow toward Lunamore. Other faces peeked out from behind the furniture. Two youths, a boy and a girl, both around sixteen. Younger faces from there, Six in total. Lunamore dashed toward them and found himself blubbering, tears streaming down his cheeks as he crawled up the outside of their improvised fortification. His family, at long last, had arrived at the shattered plains. This is Song, Lunamore said, pulling the woman close, one arm around her shoulders. His best woman in all the peaks. Ha! We made snow forts as childs and hers was always best. I should have known to find her in castle, even if it was made of old chairs. Snow? Lopin asked. How do you make forts out of snow? I've heard all about this stuff. It's like frost, right? Air-sick, Lowlander. Lunamore shook his head, moving to the twins. He put one hand on each of their shoulders. Boy is gift, Girl is cord. Ah! When I left, Gift was short like scar. Now he is nearly my height. He struggled to keep the pain from his voice. It had been almost a year. So long. Originally, his intent had been to bring them as soon as possible. But then everything had gone wrong. Sadius, the bridge crews. Next son is rock, but not same kind of rock as me. This is, um... Smaller rock. Third son is star. Second daughter is Kumatiki. Is kind of shell. You do not have him here. Last daughter is another song. Beautiful song. He stooped down beside her, smiling. She was only four and she shied away from him. She didn't remember her father. It broke his heart. Song to Okalina Kalminor. Put her hand on his back. Nearby, Kaladin introduced Bridge Four, but only Gift and Cord had been taught Lowlander languages, and Cord spoke only Vaden. Gift managed a passable greeting in Alethi. Little Song sought her mother's legs. Lunamore blinked away tears, though they were not completely sad tears. His family was here. His first saved wages had paid for the message sent by Spanreed to the Peaks Message Station. That station was still a week's travel from his home, and from there, traveling down from the slopes and crossing Alethkar took months. Around them, the caravan was finally limping into motion. This was the first chance Lunamore had found to introduce his family, as Bridge Four had spent the last half-hour trying to help the wounded. Then, Renarin had arrived with Adolin and two companies of troops and for all Renarin's worries about not being useful, his healing had saved several lives. Tuaka rubbed Lunamore's back, then knelt down beside him, pulling their daughter close with one arm, Lunamore with the other. It was a long journey, she said in Ukalaki, and longest at the end, when those things came from the sky. I should have come to the war camps, Lunamore said, to escort you. We're here now, she said. Lunomor, what happened? Your note was so terse. Kepha is dead? But what happened to you? Why so long without word? He bowed his head. How could he explain this? The bridge runs, the cracks in his soul. How could he explain that the man she'd always said was so strong had wished to die, had been a coward, had given up near the end? What of Tifi and Sinakua? She asked him. Dead, he whispered. They raised weapons in vengeance. She put her hand to her lips. She wore a glove on her safe hand in deference to silly, boring traditions. Then you, I am a chef now, Linamore said, firm. But I cook, Tuaka. He pulled her close again. Come, let us take the children to safety. We will reach the tower, which you will like. It is like the peaks, almost. I will tell you stories. Some are painful. Very well. more. I have stories, too. The peaks are home. Something is wrong. Very wrong. He pulled back and met her eyes. They'd call her dark-eyed down here, though he found infinite depth beauty and light in those deep brown-green eyes. I will explain when we are safe, she promised, picking up little beautiful song. You are wise to usher us forward, wise as ever. No, my love, he whispered, I am a fool. I would blame the heir, but I was a fool above too. A fool to ever let Kepha leave on this errand of stupidity. She walked the children across the bridge. He watched and was glad to hear Unkalaki again, a proper language. Glad that the other men did not speak it. For if they did, they might have picked out the lies that he had told them. Kaladin stepped up, clapping him on the shoulder. I'm going to assign your family my rooms, Rock. I've been slow in getting family quarters for the bridgemen. This will light a fire under me. I'll get us an assignment, and until then I'll bunk with the rest of the men. Lunamore opened his mouth to object, then thought better of it. Some days the more honorable thing was to take a gift without complaint. Thank you, he said, for the rooms. For other things, my captain. Go walk with your family, Rock. We can handle the bridge without you today. We have stormlight. Lunamore rested his fingers on the smooth wood. No, he said. It will be a privilege to carry him one last time. For my family. One last time? Kaladin said. We take to the skies, Stormblest, Lunamore said. We will walk no more in coming days. This is the end. He looked back toward a subdued bridge foregroup who seemed to sense that what he said was true. Ah! Do not look so sad. I left Great Stew back near city. Haber will probably not ruin it before we return. Come, pick up our bridge. The last time we marched not toward death, but toward full stomachs and good songs. Despite his urging, it was a solemn, respectful group who lifted the bridge. They were slaves no longer. Storms in their pockets they carried riches. It glowed fiercely, and soon their skin did as well. Kaladin took his place at the front. Together they carried the bridge on one final run, reverently, as if it were the bier of a king being taken to his tomb for his eternal rest. 38. Broken People Your skills are admirable, But you are merely a man. You had your chance to be more and refused it. Dalinar entered the next vision in the middle of a fight. He had learned his lesson. He didn't intend to mire another person in an unexpected battle. This time he intended to find a safe point, then bring people in. That meant appearing as he had many months ago holding a spear and sweaty hands, standing on a forlorn and broken plate of rock surrounded by men in primitive clothing. They wore wraps of rough-spun lavis fibers and sandals of hog's hide, and carried spears with bronze heads. Only the officer wore armor, a mere leather jerkin not even properly hardened. It had been cured, then cut roughly into the shape of a vest. It proved no help against an axe to the face. Dalinar roared, indistinctly remembering his first time in this vision. It had been one of the very earliest, when he still discounted them as nightmares. Today he intended to tease out its secrets. He charged the enemy, a group of men in similarly shoddy clothing. Dalinar's companions had backed themselves up to the edge of a cliff. If they didn't fight now, they'd be pushed off onto a steep incline that eventually ended in a sheer drop and a plummet of some fifty or sixty feet to the bottom of a valley. Dalinar rammed into the enemy group trying to push his men off the cliff. He wore the same clothing as the others, carried their weapons, but it brought one oddity. A pouch full of gemstones tucked at his waist. He gutted one enemy with his spear, then shoved the fellow toward the others. Thirty or so men with ragged beards and callous eyes. Two tripped over their dying friend, which protected Dalinar's flank for a moment. He seized the fallen man's axe, then attacked to his left. The enemy resisted, howling. These men weren't well-trained, but any fool with a sharpened edge could be dangerous. Dalinar cut, slashed, laid about himself with the axe, which was well-balanced, a good weapon. He was confident he could beat this group. Two things went wrong. First, the other spearmen didn't support him. Nobody filled in behind to protect him from being surrounded. Second, the wild men didn't flinch. Dalinar had come to rely on the way soldiers pulled away when they saw him fighting. He depended on their discipline to fail. Even when he hadn't been a shard-bearer, he'd counted on his ferocity, his sheer momentum... To win fights. Turned out, the momentum of one man, no matter how skilled or determined, amounted to little when running into a stone wall. The men before him didn't bend, didn't panic, didn't so much as quiver as he killed four of them. They struck at him with increased ferocity. Won't even laughed. In a flash, his arm was chopped by an axe he didn't even see. Then he was shoved over by the rush of the attackers. Dalinar hit the ground, stunned, looking with disbelief at the stump of his left forearm. The pain seemed a disconnected thing, distant. Only a single painspren, like a hand made of sinew, appeared by his knees. Dalinar felt a shattering, humbling sense of his own mortality. Was this what every veteran felt when he finally fell on the battlefield? This bizarre, surreal sense of both disbelief and long buried resignation? Dalinar set his jaw, then used his good hand to pull free the leather strap he was using for a belt. Holding one end in his teeth, he wrapped it around the stump of his arm right above the elbow. The cut wasn't bleeding too badly yet. Took a moment for a wound like this to bleed. The body constricted blood flow at first. Storms this blow had gone clean through. He reminded himself that this wasn't his actual flesh exposed to the air. That it wasn't his own bone there like the center ring of a hunk of pork. Why not heal yourself as you did in the vision with Fenn, the Stormfather asked. You have Stormlight? Cheating, Dalinar said with a grunt. Cheating, the Stormfather said. Why in damnation would that be cheating? You made no oath. Dalinar smiled to hear a fragment of God cursing. He wondered if the Stormfather was picking up bad habits from him. Ignoring the pain as best he could, Dalinar seized his axe in one hand and stumbled to his feet. Ahead of him, his squad of twelve fought desperately, and poorly, against the frantic enemy assault. They'd backed right to the edge of the cliff. With the towering rock formations all around, this place almost felt like a chasm, though it was considerably more open. Dalinar wavered and almost collapsed again. Storm it? Just heal yourself, the Stormfather said. I used to be able to shrug off things like this. Dalinar looked down at his missing arm. Well, perhaps nothing as bad as this. You're old, the Stormfather said. Maybe, Dalinar said, steadying himself, his vision clearing. But they made a mistake. Which is... They turned their backs on me. Dalinar charged again, wielding the axe in one hand. He dropped two of the enemy, punching through to his men. Down, he shouted to them. We can't fight them up here. Skid down the incline to that ledge below. We'll try to find a way to climb down from there. He jumped off the cliff and hit the incline in motion. It was a reckless maneuver, but storms they'd never survive up above. He slid down the stone, staying on his feet as he approached the sheer drop into the valley. A final small ledge of stone gave him a place to lurch to a stop. Other men slid down around him. He dropped his axe and seized one man, keeping him from falling all the way off the ledge to his doom. He missed two others. In all, seven men managed to stop around him. Dalinar puffed out, feeling lightheaded again, then looked down over the side of their current perch at least fifty feet to the bottom of the canyon. His fellows were a broken, ragged group of men, bloodied and afraid. Exhaustion sprens shot up nearby like jets of dust. Above, the wild men clustered around the edge, looking down longingly like axe-hounds contemplating the food on the master's table. Storms, the man Delinar had saved, slumped down. Storms, they're dead, everyone's dead he wrapped his arms around himself. Looking about him, Dalinar counted only one man besides himself who had kept his weapon. The tourniquet he'd made was letting blood seep out. We win this war, Dalinar said softly. Several others looked to him. We win. I've seen it. Our platoon is one of the last still fighting. While we may yet fall, the war itself is being won. Above, a figure joined the wild men. A creature, a good head taller than the others, with fearsome carapace armor of black and red. Its eyes glowed a deep crimson. Yes, Delanor remembered that creature. In this vision before, he'd been left for dead up above. This figure had walked past. A monster from a nightmare, he'd assumed. Dredged from his subconscious... Similar to the beings he fought on the shattered plains. Now he recognized the truth. That was a void bringer. But there had been no ever storm in the past. The storm father confirmed that. So where had those things come from back during this time? Form up, Delinar commanded. Get ready. Two of the men listened, scrambling over to him. Honestly, two out of seven was more than he'd expected. The cliff face shook as if something huge had struck it, and then the stones nearby rippled. Delinar blinked. Was the blood loss causing his vision to waver? The stone face seemed to shimmer and undulate, like the surface of a pond that had been disturbed. Someone grabbed the rim of their ledge from below, a figure resplendent in shard plate, each piece visibly glowing an amber color at its edges despite the daylight, hauled itself onto their ledge. The imposing figure stood even larger than other men wearing shard plate. Flee, the shardbearer commanded. Get your men to the healers. How? Dalinar asked. The cliff. Dalinar started. The cliff had handholds now. The shard bearer pressed his hand against the incline leading up toward the voidbringer, and again the stone seemed to writhe. Steps formed in the rock as if it were made of wax that could flow and be shaped. The Shardbearer extended his hand to the side and a massive glowing hammer appeared there. He charged upward toward the Voidbringer. Dalinar felt the rock, which was firm to his touch. He shook his head, then ushered his men to start climbing down. The last one looked at the stump of his arm. How are you going to follow, my lad? I'll manage, Dalinar said. Go. The man left. Dalinar was growing more and more fuzzy-headed. Finally, he relented and drew in some stormlight. His arm regrew. First the cut healed, then the flesh expanded outward like a budding plant. In moments, he wriggled his fingers, awed. He'd shrugged off a lost arm like a stubbed toe. The stormlight cleared his head and he took a deep, refreshed breath. The sounds of fighting came from above, but even craning his neck he couldn't see much. Though a body did roll down the incline, then slip off the ledge. Those are humans, Dalinar said. Obviously. I never put it together before, Dalinar said. There were men who fought for the Voidbringers? Some. And that shardbearer I saw, a herald? No, merely a stone ward. That surge that changed the stone is the other you may learn, though it may serve you differently. Such a contrast. The regular soldiers looked so primitive, but that surge binder. With a shake of his head, Dalinar climbed down, using the handholds in the rock face. Dalinar spotted his fellows joining a large group of soldiers farther down the canyon. Shouts and whoops of joy echoed against the walls from that direction. It was as he vaguely remembered. The war had been won. Only pockets of the enemy still resisted. The larger bulk of the army was starting to celebrate. All right, Dalinar said. Bring in Navani and Yasna. He eventually planned to show this vision to the young Emperor of Aesir, but first he wanted to prepare. Put them somewhere close to me, please. Let them keep their own clothing. Nearby, two men stopped in place. A mist of glowing stormlight obscured their forms, and when the mist faded, Navani and Yasna stood there, wearing habas. Delinar jogged over to them. Welcome to my madness, ladies. Navani turned about, craning her neck to stare up at the tops of the castle-like rock formations. She glanced toward a group of soldiers who limped past, one man helping his wounded companion and calling for regrowth. "'Storms,' Navani whispered. "'It feels so real.' "'I did warn you,' Dalinar said. "'Hopefully you don't look too ridiculous back in the rooms.' Though he had become familiar enough with the visions that his body no longer acted out what he was doing in them, that wouldn't be so for Yasna, Navani, or any of the monarchs he brought in. "'What is that woman doing?' Yasna asked, curious. A younger woman met the limping men. A radiant? She had the look about her, though she wasn't armored. It was more her air of confidence, the way she settled them down and took something glowing from the pouch at her belt. I remember this, Dalinar said. It's one of those devices I mentioned from another vision. The ones that provide regrowth, as they call it. Healing. Navani's eyes widened and she beamed like a child who had been given a plateful of sweets for middlefest. She gave Dalinar a quick hug, then hurried over to watch. She stepped right up to the side of the group, then waved impatiently for the radiant to continue. Yasna turned to look around the canyon. "'I know of no place in our time of this description, Uncle. This seems like the storm lands from those formations. Maybe it's lost somewhere in the unclaimed hills. That, or it's been so long the rock formations have weathered away completely.' She narrowed her eyes at a group of people who came through the canyon carrying water to the soldiers. Last time, Dalinar had stumbled down into the canyon just in time to meet them and get a drink. "'You're needed above,' one had told him, pointing up the shallow slope along the side of the canyon opposite where he had been fighting. "'That clothing,' Yasna said softly. "'Those weapons. "'We've gone back to ancient times.' "'Yes, uncle,' Yasna said. "'But didn't you tell me this vision comes at the end of the desolations?' "'From what I remember of it, yes. "'So the vision with the midnight essence happened before this chronologically. "'Yet you saw steel, or at least iron, in that one. "'Remember the poker?' "'I'm not likely to forget.' "'He rubbed his chin.' "'Iron and steel then, but men wielding crude weapons here, of copper and bronze, "'as if they didn't know how to soul-cast iron, or at least not how to forge it properly, "'despite it being a later date. "'Huh. That is odd. "'This is confirmation of what we've been told, but which I could never quite believe. "'The desolations were so terrible they destroyed learning and progress "'and left behind a broken people.' The orders of radiance were supposed to stop that, Dalinar said. I learned it in another vision. Yes, I read that one. All of them, actually. She looked to him then and smiled. People were always surprised to see emotion from Yasna, but Dalinar considered that unfair. She did smile. She merely reserved the expression for when it was most genuine. Thank you, uncle, she said. You have given the world a grand gift. A man can be brave in facing down a hundred enemies, but coming into these and recording them rather than hiding them was bravery on an entirely different level. It was mere stubbornness. I refused to believe I was mad. Then I bless your stubbornness, uncle. Yasna pursed her lips in thought, then continued more softly. I'm worried about you, uncle what people are saying. You mean my heresy, Dalinar said. I'm less worried about the heresy itself and more how you're dealing with the backlash. Ahead of them, Navani had somehow bullied the Radiant into letting her look at the Fabriel. The day was stretching toward late afternoon, the canyon falling into shadow. But this vision was a long one, and he was content to wait upon Navani. He settled down on a rock. ''I don't deny God, Yasna," he said. ''I simply believe that the being we call the Almighty was never actually God.'' ''Which is the wise decision to make, considering the accounts of your visions?'' Yasna settled down beside him. ''You must be happy to hear me say that,'' he said. ''I'm happy to have someone to talk to, and I'm certainly happy to see you on a journey of discovery. ''But am I happy to see you in pain?'' Am I happy to see you forced to abandon something you held dear? She shook her head. I don't mind people believing what works for them, uncle. That's something nobody ever seems to understand. I have no stake in their beliefs. I don't need company to be confident. How do you suffer it, Jasna? Dalinar said. The things people say about you. I see the lies in their eyes before they speak. Or well, they will tell me with utter sincerity things I have reportedly said even though I deny them. They refuse my own word against the rumors about me." Yasna stared out across the canyon. More men were gathering at the other end, a weak, beleaguered group who were only now discovering they were the victors in this contest. A large column of smoke rose in the distance, though he couldn't see the source. "I wish I had answers, Uncle," Yasna said softly. Fighting makes you strong, but also callous. I worry I have learned too much of the latter and not enough of the former. But I can give you a warning. He looked toward her, raising his eyebrows. They will try, Jasna said, to define you by something you are not. Don't let them. I can be a scholar, a woman, a historian, a radiant... People will still try to classify me by the thing that makes me an outsider. They want, ironically, the thing I don't do or believe to be the prime marker of my identity. I have always rejected that and will continue to do so. She reached over and put her free hand on his arm. You are not a heretic, Delanar Collin. You are a king, a radiant, and a father. You are a man with complicated beliefs, who does not accept everything you are told. You decide how you are defined. Don't surrender that to them. They will gleefully take the chance to define you if you allow it. Dalinar nodded slowly. Regardless, Yasna said, standing, this is probably not the best occasion for such a conversation. I realize we can replay this vision at will, but the number of storms in which we can do it will be limited. I should be exploring. Last time, I went that way, Dalinar said, pointing up the slope. I'd like to see what I saw again. Excellent. We'd best split to cover more ground. I will go in the other direction, then we can meet afterward and compare notes. She took off down the slope toward the largest gathering of men. Dalinar stood up and stretched, his earlier exertions still weighing on him. A short time later, Navani returned, mumbling explanations of what she'd seen under her breath. Teshev sat with her in the waking world and Kalami with Yasna, recording what they said. The only way to take notes in one of these visions. Navani took his arm in hers and looked after Yasna, a fond smile on her lips. No. None would think Yasna emotionless if they'd witnessed that tearful reunion between mother and daughter. How did you ever mother that one? Dalinar asked. Mostly without letting her realize she was being mothered, Navani said. She pulled him close. That Fabriel is wonderful, Delinar. It's like a soul caster. In what way? In that I have no idea how it works. I think... I think something is wrong with the way we've been viewing the ancient Fabrials. He looked to her, and she shook her head. I can't explain yet. Navani, he prodded. No, she said stubbornly. I need to present my ideas to the scholars, see if what I'm thinking even makes sense, and then prepare a report. That's the short of it, Delanar Colin, so be patient. I probably won't understand half of what you say anyway, he grumbled. He didn't immediately start them up in the direction he'd gone before. Last time, he'd been prompted by someone in the vision. He'd acted differently this time. Would the same prompting still come? He had to wait only a short time till an officer came running up to them. You there, the man said. "Malad Sanzent, isn't that your name? You're promoted to sergeant. Head to base camp three. He pointed up the incline. Up over that knob there, down the other side. Hop to it! He spared a frown for Navani. To his eyes, the two of them didn't belong standing in such a familial pose, but then charged off without another word. Dalinar smiled. What? Navani said. These are said experiences that Honor wanted me to have. Though there's freedom in them, I suspect that the same information will be conveyed no matter what I do. So, do you want to disobey? Dalinar shook his head. There are some things I need to see again. Now that I understand this vision is accurate, I know better questions to ask. They started up the incline of smooth rock, walking arm in arm. Dalinar felt unexpected emotions start to churn within him, partially due to Yasna's words. But this was something deeper a welling of gratitude, relief, even love. Dalinar? Navani asked. Are you well? I'm just thinking, he said, trying to keep his voice even. Blood of my father's. It's been nearly a half year, hasn't it, since all this started? All that time I came to these alone. It's just good to share the burden, Navani. To be able to show this to you, and to know for once, absolutely and certainly, that what I'm seeing isn't merely in my own mind. She pulled him close again, walking with her head on his shoulder. Far more affectionate in public than a lethy propriety would sanction, but hadn't they thrown that out the window long ago? Besides, there was nobody to see. Nobody real, anyway. They crested the slope, then passed several blackened patches. What could burn rock like that? Other sections looked like they'd been broken by an impossible weight while yet others had strangely shaped holes ripped in them. Nabani stopped them beside a particular formation, only knee-high, where the rock rippled in a strange little symmetrical pattern. It looked like liquid, frozen mid-flow. Cries of pain echoed through these canyons and across the open plain of rock. Looking out over the ridge, Dalinar found the main battlefield. Stretching into the distance were corpses, Thousands of them, some in piles. "'Others slaughtered in heaps while pressed against walls of stone. "'Stormfather,' Delinar said, addressing the spren. "'This is what I told Jasne it was, isn't it? "'Aharietium? The Last Desolation?' "'That is what it was called.' "'Include Navani in your responses,' Delinar requested.' ''Again you make demands of me. You should not do this,'' the voice rumbled in the open air, and Navani jumped. ''Aharietium,'' Delanar said. ''This isn't how songs and paintings depict the final defeat of the Voidbringers. In them, it's always some grand conflict with tremendous monsters clashing against brave lines of soldiers. ''Men lie in their poetry.'' "'Surely you know this. "'It just seems so like any other battlefield. "'And that rock behind you?' "'Delinar turned toward it, then gasped, "'realizing something he'd mistaken for a boulder "'was actually a giant skeletal face. "'A mound of rubble they'd passed "'was actually one of those things "'he'd seen in a different vision. "'A stone monster that ripped its way out of the ground.' Nivani stepped up to it. Where are the Parshmen? Earlier I fought against humans, Dalinar said. They were recruited to the other side, the Stormfather said. I think. You think? Dalinar demanded. During these days, honor still lived. I was not yet fully myself. More of a storm, less interested in men. His death changed me. My memory of that time is difficult to explain. But if you would see Parshman, you need but look across that field. Nivani joined Dalinar at the ridge, looking out over the plain of corpses below. Which ones? Nivani asked. You can't tell? Not from this distance? Maybe half of those are what you'd call Parshman. Eleanor squinted, but still couldn't make out which were human and which were not. He led Navani down the ridge, then across a plain. Here the corpses intermingled. Men in their primitive clothing, parchment corpses that bled orange blood. This was a warning he should have recognized, but hadn't been able to put together his first time in the vision. He'd thought he was seeing a nightmare of their fight on the shattered plains. He knew the path to take— one that led him and Navani across the field of corpses, then into a shadowed recess beneath a tall rocky spire. The light had caught on the rocks here, intriguing him. Before, he thought he'd wandered into this place by accident, but in truth, the entire vision had pointed him at this moment. Here they found nine shard blades rammed into the stone. Abandoned. Navani put her gloved safe hand to her mouth at the sight. Nine beautiful blades, each a treasure simply left here? Why and how? Dalinar stepped through the shadows, rounding the nine blades. This was another image he'd misunderstood when living this vision the first time. These weren't just shard blades. Ash's eyes, Navani said, pointing. I recognize that one, Dalinar. It's the one. the one that killed Gavilar, Dalinar said. "'stopping beside the plainest blade, long and thin. "'The weapon of the white assassin. "'It's an honor blade. "'They all are. "'This is the day that the Heralds made their final ascension "'to the Tranquiline Halls,' Navani said. "'To lead the battle there instead. "'Dalinar turned to the side, to where he glimpsed the air shimmering. "'The Stormfather. "'Only,' Navani said, This wasn't actually the end, because the enemy came back. She walked around the Ring of Swords, then paused by an open spot in the circle. Where is the Tenth Blade? The stories are wrong, aren't they? Dalinar said to the Stormfather. We didn't defeat the enemy for good, as the Heralds claimed. They lied. Nivani's head snapped up, her eyes focused on Dalinar. I long blamed them, the Stormfather said, for their lack of honor. It is difficult for me to look past oaths broken. I hated them. Now, the more I come to know men, the more I see honor in those poor creatures you name heralds. Tell me what happened, Delinar said. What really Happened. Are you ready for this story? There are parts you will not like. If I've accepted that God is dead, I can accept the fall of his heralds. Navani settled down on a nearby stone, face pale. It started with the creatures you name void bringers, the storm father said, voice rumbling and low, distant. Introspective? As I said, my view of these events is distorted. I do remember that once, long before the day you are seeing now, there were many souls of creatures who had been slain, angry and terrible. They had been given great power by the enemy, the one called Odium. That was the beginning, a start of desolations." For when these died, they refused to pass on. That's what's happening now, Delinar said. The Parshmen. They're transformed by these things in the Everstorm. Those things are... He swallowed. The souls of their dead? They are the spren of Parshmen long dead. They are their kings, their light-eyes, their valiant soldiers from long, long ago. The process is not easy on them. Some of these spren are mere forces now, animalistic, fragments of minds given power by Odium. Others are more awake. Each rebirth further injures their minds— They are reborn using the bodies of Parshman to become the Fused. And even before the Fused learned to command the Surges, men could not fight them. Humans could never win when the creatures they killed were reborn each time they were slain. And so the Oath Pact. Ten people, Dalinar said. Five male, five female. He looked at the swords. They stopped this? They gave themselves up. As odium is sealed by the powers of honor and cultivation, your heralds sealed the spren of the dead into the place you call damnation. The heralds went to honor, and he gave them this right, this oath. They thought it would end the war forever, but they were wrong. Honor was wrong. He was like a spren himself, Dalinar said. You told me before. Odium, too. Honor let the power blind him to the truth, that while spren and gods cannot break their oaths, men can and will. The ten heralds were sealed upon damnation, trapping the void-bringers there. However, if any one of the ten agreed to bend his oath and let Voidbringers past, it opened a flood. They could all return. And that started a desolation, Delanor said. That started a desolation, the Stormfather agreed. An oath that could be bent, a pact that could be undermined. Delanor could see what had happened, "'It seemed so obvious. "'They were tortured, weren't they? "'Horribly, by the spirits they trapped. "'They could share the pain because of their bond, "'but eventually someone always yielded. "'Once one broke, all ten heralds returned to Roshar. "'They fought, they led men, Their oath pact delayed the fused from returning immediately, but each time after a desolation, the heralds returned to damnation to seal the enemy again, to hide, fight, and finally withstand together. The cycle repeated. At first, the respite between desolations was long, hundreds of years— Near the end, desolations came separated by fewer than ten years. There was less than one year between the last two. The souls of the heralds had worn thin. They broke almost as soon as they were caught and tortured in damnation. Which explains why things look so bad this time, Nivani whispered from her seat. Society had suffered desolation after desolation, "'Separated by short intervals, culture, technology, all broken.' "'Delinar knelt and rubbed her shoulder. "'It is not so bad as I feared,' she said. "'The heralds. They were honorable. "'Perhaps not as divine, but I may even like them more, "'to know they were once just normal men and women.' They were broken people, the Stormfather said. But I can start to forgive them and their shattered oaths. It makes sense to me now, as it never did before. He sounded surprised. The Void bringers who did this, Navani said. They are the ones that are returning now, again. The Fused... The souls of the dead from long ago—they loathe you. They are not rational. They have become permeated with his essence—the essence of pure hatred. They will see this world destroyed in order to destroy mankind. And yes, they have returned. A Dalinar said, was not really the end. It was just another desolation. Except something changed for the heralds. They left their swords? After each desolation the heralds returned to damnation, the Stormfather said. If they died in the fighting they went there automatically, and those who survived went back willingly at the end. They had been warned that if any lingered it could lead to disaster. Besides... They needed to be together in damnation to share the burden of torture if one was captured. But this time, an oddity occurred. Through cowardice or luck, they avoided death. None were killed in battle, except one. Delinar looked to the open spot in the ring. The nine realized, the Stormfather said, that one of them had never broken. Each of the others at some point had been the one to give in, to start the desolation to escape the pain. They determined that perhaps they didn't all need to return. They decided to stay here, risking an eternal desolation, but hoping that the one they left in damnation would alone be enough to hold it all together the one who wasn't meant to have joined them in the first place, the one who was not a king, scholar, or general. Telenolat Dalinar said, the bearer of agonies, the one abandoned in damnation, left to withstand the tortures alone. Almighty above, Navani whispered. How long has it been? Over a thousand years, right? Four and a half thousand years, the Stormfather said. Four and a half millennia of torture. Silence settled over the little alcove, which was adorned with silvery blades and lengthening shadows. Dalinar, feeling weak, sat down on the ground beside Navani's rock. He stared at those blades and felt a sudden irrational hatred for the heralds. It was foolish. As Navani had said, they were heroes. They'd spared humanity the assaults for great swaths of time, paying with their own sanity. Still, he hated them, for the man they had left behind. The man. Dalinar leaped to his feet. It's him, he shouted. The madman. He really is a herald. He finally broke. "'the Stormfather said. "'He has joined the nine who still live. "'In these millennia none have ever died and returned to damnation, "'but it doesn't matter as it once did. "'The Oath Pact has been weakened almost to annihilation, "'and Odium has created his own storm. "'The Fuse do not return to damnation when killed.' They are reborn in the next ever storm. Storms? How could they defeat that? Dalinar looked again at that empty spot among the swords. The madman, the herald. He came to Kolinar with a shard blade. Shouldn't that have been his honor blade? Yes, but the one delivered to you is not it. I do not know what happened. I need to speak with him. He, he was at the monastery when we marched, wasn't he? Delanor needed to ask the Ardents to see who had evacuated the madmen. Is this what caused the Radiance to rebel? Navani asked. Are these secrets what sparked the Recreants? No, that is a deeper secret, one I will not speak. Why? Delanor demanded. Because were you to know it, you would abandon your oaths as the ancient radiance did. I wouldn't. Wouldn't you? The Stormfather demanded, his voice growing louder. Would you swear it? Swear upon an unknown. These heralds swore they would hold back the void bringers, and what happened to them? There is not a man alive who has not broken an oath, Delanar Colin. Your new radiance hold in their hands the souls and lives of my children. No, I will not let you do as your predecessors did. You know the important parts. The rest is irrelevant. Dalinar drew in a deep breath, but contained his anger. In a way, the Stormfather was right. He couldn't know how this secret would affect him or his radiance. He'd still rather know it. He felt as if he were walking about with a headsman following, planning to claim his life at any moment. He sighed as Navani stood and walked to him, taking his arm. I'll need to try to do sketches from memory of each of those honor blades, or better send Shalon to do it. Perhaps we can use the drawings to locate the others. A shadow moved at the entrance to this little alcove, and a moment later a young man stumbled in. He was pale of skin, with strange wide shin eyes and brown hair that had a curl to it. He could have been one of any number of shin men Dalinar had seen in his own time. They were still ethnically distinct, despite the passing of millennia. The man fell to his knees before the wonder of the abandoned honor blades. But a moment later, the man looked to Dalinar and then spoke with the Almighty's voice. Unite them. Unite them. Was there nothing you could do for the heralds? Delinar asked. Was there nothing their god could do to prevent this? The Almighty, of course, couldn't answer. He had died fighting this thing they faced, the force known as Odium. He had, in a way, given his own life to the same cause as the heralds. The vision faded. Folio. The Vorinhavah. Though fashion elites in Leofour have presented more daring designs in past folios, they've found there is no quicker way to influence Alethian Vaden styles than through subtle changes over time in the traditional Hava. 39.
1: Notes No good can come of two shards settling in one location. It was agreed that we would not interfere with one another, and it disappoints me that so few of the shards have kept to this original agreement. Shalan can take notes for us, Yasna said. Shallan looked up from her notebook. She'd settled against the tile-covered wall, sitting on the floor in her blue hava, and had intended to spend the meeting doing sketches, it had been over a week since her recovery and subsequent meeting with Yasna at the Crystal Pillar. Shalon was feeling better and better, and at the same time, less and less like herself. What a surreal experience it was, following Yasna around as if nothing had changed. Today, Dalinar had called a meeting of his radiance, and Yasna had suggested the basement rooms of the tower because they were so well secured. She was incredibly worried about being spied upon. The rows of dust had been removed from the library floor. Navani's flock of scholars had carefully cataloged every splinter. The emptiness served only to underscore the absence of the information they'd hoped to find. Now everyone was looking at her. "Notes?" Shalon asked. She'd barely been following the conversation. We could call for Brightness Tesho. So far it was a small group. The Blackthorn, Navani, and their core surge binders, Yasna, Renarin, Shalon, and Kaladin Stormblessed, the Flying bridgeman, Adolin and Elokar were away, visiting Vadenar to survey the military capacities of Taravangian's army. Malata was working the Oathgate for them. No need to call in another scribe. Yasna said. We covered shorthand in your training, Shalon. I'd see how well you've retained the skill. Be fastidious. We will need to report to my brother what we determine here. The rest of them had settled into a group of chairs except for Kaladin, who stood leaning against the wall, looming like a thundercloud. He had killed Helleran, her brother. The emotion of that peaked out, but Shallan smothered it, stuffing it into the back of her mind. Kaladin wasn't to be blamed for that. He'd just been defending his Bright Lord. She stood up, feeling like a chastened child. The weight of their stares prodded her to walk over and take a seat beside Yasna, with her pad open and pencil ready. So, Kaladin said, according to the Father, not only is the Almighty dead, but he condemned ten people to an eternity of torture. We call them heralds, and they're not only traitors to their oaths, they're probably also mad. We had one of them in our custody, likely the maddest of the lot, but we lost him in the turmoil of getting everyone to Eurythiru. In short, everyone who might have been able to help us is crazy, dead, a traitor, or some combination of the three. He folded his arms. Figures. Yasna glanced at Shalon. She sighed, then recorded a summary of what he'd said, even though it was already a summary. So what do we do with this knowledge? Renarin said, leaning forward with his hands clasped. We must curb the Voidbringer assault, Yasna said. We can't let them secure too great a foothold. The Parshmen aren't our enemies. Kaladin said softly. Shallan glanced at him. There was something about that wavy dark hair, that grim expression. Always serious, always solemn, and so tense, like he had to be strict with himself to contain his passion. Of course there are enemies, Yasna said. They're in the process of conquering the world. Even if your report indicates they aren't as immediately destructive as we feared, they are still an enormous threat. They just want to live better lives, Kaladin said. I can believe, Yasna said, that the common Parshmen have such a simple motive. But their leaders? They will pursue our extinction. Agreed, Navani said. They were born out of a twisted thirst to destroy humankind. The Parshmen are the key, Yasna said, shuffling through some pages of notes. Looking over what you discovered, it seems that all Parshmen can bond with ordinary Spren as part of their natural life cycle. What we've been calling void bringers are instead a combination of a Parshman with some kind of hostile Spren or spirit. The Fused, Dalinar said. Great, Kaladin said. Fine, let's fight them, then. Why do the common folk have to get crushed in the process? Perhaps, Yasnaya said, you should visit my uncle's vision and see for yourself the consequences of a soft heart. First-hand witness of a desolation might change your perspective. I've seen war, Brightness. I'm a soldier. Problem is, ideals have expanded my focus. I can't help but see the common men among the enemy. They're not monsters, Dalinar raised a hand to stop Yasna's reply. Your concern does you credit, Captain, Dalinar said. And your reports have been exceptionally timely. Do you honestly see a chance for an accommodation here? I, I don't know, sir. Even the common parshmen are furious at what was done to them. I can't afford to stay my hand from war, Dalinar said. Everything you say is right, but it is also nothing new. I have never gone to battle where some poor fools on either side, men who didn't want to be there in the first place, weren't going to bear the brunt of the pain. Maybe, Kaladin said, that should make you reconsider those other wars, rather than using them to justify this one. Shallan's breath caught. It didn't seem the sort of thing you said, to the Blackthorn. Would that it were so simple, Captain. Dalinar sighed loudly, looking weathered to Shallan. Let me say this. If we can be certain of one thing, it is the morality of defending our homeland. I don't ask you to go to war idly, but I will ask you to protect. Althkar is besieged. The men doing it might be innocents, but they are controlled by those who are evil. Kaladin nodded slowly. The king has asked my help in opening the oath gate. I've agreed to give it to him. Once we secure our homeland, Dalinar said, I promise to do something I'd never have contemplated before hearing your reports. I'll seek to negotiate. I'll see if there is some way out of this that doesn't involve smashing our armies together. Negotiate? Yasna said. Uncle, these creatures are crafty, ancient, and angry. They spent millennia torturing the heralds just to return and seek our destruction. We'll see, Dalinar said. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to contact anyone in the city with the visions. The Stormfather has found Kolinar to be a dark spot to him. Navani nodded. That seems, unfortunately, to coordinate with the failure of the span reeds in the city. Captain Kaladin's report confirms what our last notes from the city said. The enemy is mobilizing for an assault on the capital. We can't know what the city's status will be once our strike force arrives. You might have to infiltrate an occupied city, Captain. Please send that it isn't so, Renarin whispered, eyes down. How many would have died on those walls, fighting nightmares? We need more information, Yasna said. Captain Kaladin, how many people can you take with you to Alithkar?" I plan to fly at the front of a storm, Kaladin said, like I did returning to Eurythiru. It's a bumpy ride, but maybe I can fly over the top of the winds. I need to test it. Anyway, I think I could bring a small group. You won't need a large force, Dalinar said. You, a few of your best squires. I'd send Adolin with you too, so you have another shard bearer in an emergency. Six, perhaps. You, three of your men, the king, Adolin. Get past the enemy, sneak into the palace, and activate the oath gate. Pardon if this is out of line, Kaladin said. But Elokar himself is the odd one. Why not just send me and Adolin? The king will probably slow us down. The king needs to go for personal reasons. Will there be a problem between you? I'll do what is right, regardless of my feelings, sir. And I might be beyond those feelings anyway now. This is too small. Yasna mumbled. Shalan started then glanced at her too small. Not ambitious enough, Yasna said more firmly. By the Stormfather's explanation, the Fused are immortal. Nothing stops their rebirth now that the Heralds have failed. This is our real problem. Our enemy has a near endless supply of parchment bodies to inhabit, and judging by what the good captain has confirmed through experience, these Fused can access some kind of surge binding. How do we fight against that? Shallan looked up from her notepad, glancing toward the others in the room. Renarin still leaned forward, hands clasped, eyes on the floor. Navani and Dalinar were sharing a look. Kaladin continued to lean against the wall, arms folded, but he shifted his posture, uncomfortable. Well, Dalinar finally said, we will have to take this one goal at a time. First, Kolinar. Pardon? Uncle, Yasna said. While I don't disagree with that first step, now is not the time to think only of the immediate future. If we are to avoid a desolation that breaks society, then we'll need to use the past as our guide and make a plan. She's right, Renarin whispered. We're facing something that killed the Almighty himself. We fight terrors that break the minds of men and ruin their souls. We can't think small. He ran his hands through his hair, which was marked by less yellow than his brother's. Almighty, we have to think big, but can we take it all in without going mad ourselves? Dalinar took a deep breath. Yasna, you have a suggestion of where to start this plan? Yes, the answer is obvious. We need to find the heralds. Kaladin nodded in agreement. Then, Yasna added, we need to kill them. What? Kaladin demanded. Woman, are you insane? The Storm Father laid it out, Yasna said, unperturbed. The Heralds made a pact. When they died, their souls traveled to damnation and trapped the spirits of the Bringers, preventing them from returning. Yeah, then the Heralds were tortured until they broke. The Storm Father said their pact was weakened but did not say it was destroyed, Yasna said. I suggest that we at least see if one of them is willing to return to damnation. Perhaps they can still prevent the spirits of the enemy from being reborn. It's either that, or we completely exterminate the Parshmen so that the enemy has no hosts. She met Kaladin's eyes. In the face of such an atrocity, I would consider the sacrifice of one or more heralds to be a small price. Storms! Kaladin said, standing up straight. Have you no sympathy? I have plenty, Bridgman. Fortunately, I temper it with logic. Perhaps you should consider acquiring some at a future date. Listen, brightness! Kaladin began. I. Enough, Captain! Dalinar said. He gave Yasna a glance. Both fell quiet. Yasna without so much as a peep. Shalan had never seen her respond to someone with the respect she gave Dalinar. Yasna, no, Dalinar said, even if the pact of the heralds still holds, we can't know that they'd stay in damnation, or the mechanics for locking away the void bringers there. That said, locating them seems like an excellent first step. They must know much that can greatly assist us. I will leave it to you, Yasna to plan out how to accomplish that. What, what of the unmade, Renarin said. There will be others, like the creature we found down here. Navani has been researching them, Dalinar said. We need to go even farther, uncle, Yasna said. We need to watch the movements of the Void bringers. Our only hope is to defeat their armies so soundly, that even if their leaders are constantly reborn, they lack the manpower to overwhelm us. Protecting Althkar, Kaladin said, doesn't have to mean completely crushing the parchment, and if you wish, Captain, Yasna snapped, I can get you some mink kits to cuddle while the adults plan. None of us want to talk about this, but that does not make it any less inevitable. I'd love that, Kaladin responded. In turn, I'll get you some eels to cuddle. You'll feel right at home. Yasna curiously smiled. Let me ask this, Captain. Do you think ignoring the movement of Voidbringer troops would be wise? Probably not, he admitted. And do you think, perhaps, that you could train your squire wind runners to fly up high and scout for us? If span reeds are proving unreliable these days... We'll need another method of watching the enemy. I'd happily cuddle Sky Eels, as you offer, if your team would be willing to spend some time imitating them. Kaladin looked to Dalinar, who nodded appreciatively. Excellent, Yasna said. Uncle, your coalition of monarchs is a superb idea. We need to pen the enemy in and prevent them from overrunning all of Roshar. If- she trailed off. Shallan paused, looking at the doodle she'd been doing. Actually, it was a bit more complex than a doodle. It was kind of a full sketch of Kaladin's face, with passionate eyes and a determined expression. Yasna had noticed a creation spren in the form of a small gemstone that had appeared on the top of her page, and Shallan blushed, shooing it away. Perhaps... Yasna said, glancing at Shallan's sketchbook. We could do with a short break, uncle. If you wish, he said. I could use something to drink. They broke up, Dalinar and Navani chatting softly as they went to check with the guards and servants in the main hallway. Shallan watched them go with a sense of longing as she felt Yasna loom over her. Let us chat, Yasna said, nodding toward the far end of the long rectangular room. Shallan sighed, closed her notebook, and followed Yasna to the other end, near a pattern of tiles on the wall. This far from the spheres brought for the meeting, the lighting was dim. May I? Yasna said, holding out her hand for Shallan's notebook. She relinquished it. A fine depiction of the young captain, Yasna said. I see three lines of notes here after you were pointedly instructed to take the minutes. We should have sent for a scribe. We had a scribe. To take notes is not a lowly task, Shalon. It is a service you can provide. If it's not a lowly task, Shalon said, then perhaps you should have done it. Yasna closed the sketchpad. And fixed Shalon with a calm, level stare—the type that made Shalon squirm. I remember, Yasna said, a nervous, desperate young woman, frantic to earn my goodwill. Shallan didn't reply. I understand, Yasna said, that you have enjoyed independence. What you accomplished here is remarkable, Shallan. You even seem to have earned my uncle's trust, a challenging task. Then maybe we can just call the wardship finished, eh? Shalon said. I mean, I'm a full radiant now. Radiant, yes. Shalon said. Full. Where's your armor? Um, armor. Yasna sighed softly, opening up the sketch pad again. Shalon she said in a strangely comforting tone. I'm impressed. I am impressed, truly. But what I've heard of you recently is troubling. You've ingratiated yourself with my family and made good on the causal betrothal to Adeline. Yet here you are with wandering eyes, as this sketch testifies. I, You skip meetings that Dalinar calls, Yasna continued, soft but immovable. When you do go, you sit at the back and barely pay attention. He tells me that half the time you find an excuse to slip out early. You investigated the presence of an unmade in the tower and frightened it off basically alone, yet you never explained how you found it when Dalinar's soldiers could not. She met Shallan's eyes. You've always hidden things from me. Some of those secrets were very damaging and I find myself unwilling to believe you don't have others. Shallan bit her lip, but nodded. That was an invitation, Yasna said, to talk to me. Shallan nodded again. She wasn't working with the Ghost Bloods. That was Vale. And Yasna didn't need to know about Vale. Yasna couldn't know about Vale. Very well. Yasna said with a sigh. Your wardship is not finished, and won't be until I'm convinced that you can meet minimum requirements of scholarship, such as taking shorthand notes during an important conference. Your path as a radiant is another matter. I don't know that I can guide you. Each order was distinctive in its approach. But as a young man will not be excused from his geography lessons, simply because he has achieved competence with the sword. I will not release you from your duties to me, simply because you have discovered your powers as a radiant. Yasna handed back the sketchpad and walked toward the ring of chairs. She settled next to Renarin, prodding him gently to speak with her. He looked up for the first time since the meeting had begun and nodded, saying something Shallan couldn't hear. Mmm, Pattern said. She is wise. That's perhaps her most infuriating feature, Shallon said. Storms. She makes me feel like a child. Mmm, worst part is she's probably right, Shallon said. Around her, I do act more like a child. It's like part of me wants to let her take care of everything, and I hate, hate, Hate that about myself. Is there a solution? I don't know. Perhaps. Act like an adult? Shalon put her hands to her face, groaning softly and rubbing her eyes with her fingers. She'd basically asked for that, hadn't she? Come on, she said. Let's go to the rest of the meeting. As much as I want an excuse to get out of here. Mm, Patterns said. Something about this room, what Shalon asked something pattern said in his buzzing way, it has memories, Shalon memories did he mean in Shadesmar? She'd avoided traveling there. that was at least one thing in which she'd listened to Yasna. She made her way back to her seat, and after a moment's thought slipped Yasna a quick note. Pattern says this room has memories. Worth investigating in Shadesmar? Yasna regarded the note, then wrote back. I found that we should not ignore the offhand comments of our spren. Press him. I will investigate this place. Thank you for the suggestion. The meeting started again, and now turned to discussion of specific kingdoms around Roshar. Yasna was most keen on getting the Shin to join them. The shattered plains held the easternmost of the Oath Gates, and that was already under Alethi control. If they could gain access to the one farthest to the west, they could travel the breadth of Roshar, from the entry point of the high storms to the entry point of the ever storms, in a heartbeat. They didn't talk tactics too specifically. That was a masculine art, and Dalinar would want his high princes and generals to discuss the battlefields. Still, Shallan didn't fail to notice the tactical terms Yasna used now and then. In things like this, Shallan had difficulty understanding the woman. In some ways, Yasna seemed fiercely masculine. She studied whatever she pleased, and she talked tactics as easily as she talked poetry. She could be aggressive, even cold, Shalan had seen her straight up execute thieves who had tried to rob her. Beyond that, well, it probably was best not to speculate on things with no meaning, but people did talk. Yasna had turned down every suitor for her hand, including some very attractive and influential men. People wondered, was she perhaps simply not interested? All of this should have resulted in a person who was decidedly unfeminine. Yet Yasna wore the finest makeup and wore it well, with shadowed eyes and bright red lips. She kept her safe hand covered, and preferred intricate and fetching styles of braids from her hairdresser. Her writings and her mind made her the very model of voran femininity." Next to Yasna, Shalon felt pale, stupid, and completely lacking in curves. What would it be like to be so confident, so beautiful yet so unconstrained all at once? Surely Yasna Kolin had far fewer problems in life than Shalon. At the very least, she created far fewer for herself than Shalon did. It was about this point that Shallan realized she'd missed a good 15 minutes of the meeting and had again lapsed in her note-taking. Blushing furiously, she huddled up on her chair and did her best to remain focused for the rest of the meeting. At the end, she presented a sheet of formal shorthand to Yasna. The woman looked it over, then cocked a perfectly shaped eyebrow at the line at the center where Shallan had grown distracted. Dalinar said some stuff here, the line said. It was very important and useful, so I'm sure you remember it without needing a reminder. Shallan smiled apologetically and shrugged. Please write this out in longhand, Yasna said, handing it back. Have a copy sent to my mother and to my brother's head scribe. Shallan took it as a dismissal and rushed away. She felt like a student who had just been released from lessons, which angered her. At the same time, she wanted to run off and immediately do as Yasna had asked, to renew her mistress's faith in her, which angered her even more. She ran up the steps out of the tower's basement, using stormlight to prevent fatigue. The different sides within her clashed, snapping at each other. She imagined months spent under Yasna's watchful care, training to become a mousy scribe, as her father had always wanted. She remembered the days in Carbranth, when she'd been so uncertain, so timid. She couldn't return to that, she wouldn't. But what to do instead? When she finally reached her rooms, Pattern was buzzing at her. She tossed aside her sketch pad and satchel, digging out Vale's coat and hat. Vale would know what to do. However, pinned to the inside of Vale's coat was a sheet of paper, Shallan froze, then looked around the room, suddenly anxious. Hesitantly, she unpinned the sheet and unfolded it. The top read, You have accomplished the task we set out for you. You have investigated the unmade, and not only learned something of it, but also frightened it away. As promised, here is your reward. The following letter, Explains the truth about your deceased brother. Nan Helleran, acolyte of the Radiant Order of the Skybreakers.